0: Let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Could you do that? We're continuing our series on spiritually uh, spiritual EQ. We're talking about how to be emotionally healthy in our spirituality, that, that God cares not just about like what we think or do, but also how we feel. He cares about the whole person and, and is invested in, in working that into wholeness. So, Genesis chapter 2, Genesis 2 verse 8. Now, Yahweh God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. Yahweh God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food, and in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Skip down to verse 15. Now, Yahweh God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it, and then... Uh, Yahweh God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Okay, so here's the scene. Humanity is hot off the press, or I guess fresh out of the dirt would be more appropriate. And they are placed in a beautiful, abundant garden of goodness. Adam and Eve are intended for life in the garden. And the name Eden, the name God gives this garden, literally means delight. It is a garden of pure delight. And we share this common origin with Adam and Eve, that we, humanity, are intended to live a life whose context is the delight of God's provision and goodness. The Hebrew Scriptures... Uh, kind of make this connection between Eden this place of delight and this Hebrew concept of shalom you get it all throughout the scriptures this Hebrew word for shalom means peace literally but it means way more than peace it actually uh, it, it means all things as they ought to be it is all things as they should be all things rightly ordered perfectly webbed into an economy of justice and love and harmony That's shalom. And this is the way God has designed his good creation. And part of that shalom, a very big part of that shalom, is living within the order that God has given to the world. He's ordered the world just so. And he says, there's good trees and you can eat from them. And then there's also trees that will kill you. There is order. But notice what happens next. In chapter 3, verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals Yahweh God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. Verse 4. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. The eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked and so they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. There's this good creation. It's rightly ordered. There are some trees that are good for food, and there's some trees that will kill you, or a tree that will kill you. Well, unless God's holding out on you. Like, what if, what if God's holding out on you? What if God's wrong? Or what if he's mean or vindictive? Or he just, he's a killjoy. What if he doesn't even really know? The lie of the serpent dislodges trust, and rebellion ensues. And so Adam and Eve violate the shalom of God's rightly ordered good creation and they assume the role of God themselves and they, they move away from God's definition of what is good and they become independent. They embrace their own version of good. The result is catastrophic. Just like sin always does, it creates a ripple effect of pain. It, here it results in the man and the woman becoming exiles from delight. They're exiles from Eden. So the shalom they knew in the garden fades to a distant memory, and now they must do their work, not in the great delight and abundance of the garden, but in the pain and sweat of the wild waste east of Eden. And humanity has been living as exiles ever since. In other words, friends, things are not the way they're supposed to be. We know this, don't we? We know the world isn't as it ought to be. We know this because we see it every day. And so whether it's a war in Syria and Europe being flooded by refugees who have no home or shootings in movie theaters or churches or racial tension between the police and different communities or between your parents or economic injustices and a lack of affordable housing, the list goes on. Really, all you need is a news app and you can be as depressed as you want to get or as numb as you want to get because it's overwhelming and we start to shut down in the face of that much violence against shalom so this sense of exile this sense that things aren't the way they are meant to be this sense of deep loss of pain of grief is something we each face personally see it isn't just out there it's also right here see Grief and pain and loss may be universal, but it's always personal to someone. I remember standing in our first apartment. We um, had just gotten married, um, not that, you know, well, uh, probably a year earlier, a little over, and we had just had our brand new first kid. Penny was little, and I remember the evening, I remember standing in our main kind of Well, we had one room, basically, right? And uh, I remember where we were, and and the phone rings. And it rang for Lauren. It was her mom. And it would be the second time in my wife's life that she would hear the dreaded words. Denise, my mother-in-law, had cancer. Again. But this time, there wasn't a surgery. There was just time to wait for the inevitable. And it's moments like these that hit us as incredibly violent, alien, unnecessary interruptions of life. They they just don't feel like they should be there. And they don't feel like they should be there because that's true. They're not supposed to be there. We live east of Eden. We live in a world where God was right. He said there will be a tree and eating from it will be eating death on yourself but not just physical death we're talking today about growing through our grief and our loss as part of this series on emotionally healthy spirituality and i've titled the message gardens of grief because we're looking at why we have grief and our loss of the first garden but where there is hope because of the second garden what we do with it and ultimately how we can grow through it and look at these three things first i want to do this why do we have grief Where does it come from? Why do we have it? Well, building on the text we've just looked at, building on the stories we've just looked at, I have to tell you that cancer and death aren't supposed to happen. Adultery and betrayal weren't supposed to happen. Unloving parents, alcoholic mothers weren't supposed to happen. Shame, addiction, loss, war, loneliness, anxiety. None of these things are indigenous species to God's good creation. They're alien invasions. They are mutations of what God created to be our delight. And so part of the point here is that we don't get to point the finger back and say, God, you made everything this way. The reality was he made things good. He made things for shalom and sin creates this rift. It does violence against shalom and things aren't the way they're meant to be. And all the things we just listed seem to have a home field advantage in this world we know as an exile from the garden. God God warned the man and he warned the woman, don't eat this. You will be eating death if you choose to become independent from me. He didn't only mean physical death. He meant multiple deaths. For some of you, death is a very real thing. There's somebody you love who's dying or has died. But that's not the only kind of loss. There are losses of dreams, losses of reputation, loss of home, loss of job, loss of abilities, loss of friends. The list goes on. But when sin entered the creation, the first thing to die wasn't physical death, but it was Adam and Eve's relationship with God. There was a spiritual death. They hid from God, the God that they knew and were closely connected to. But they didn't just hide from God. They lost intimacy with each other. And so they sowed fig leaves to cover over what they had previously been unashamed of. But the moment their definition of good becomes unanchored from God's definition of good, now there is insecurity and now there is shame. But also their relationship to work becomes frustrated. Attending the earth becomes difficult. And so spiritually and relationally and vocationally, sin causes incredible losses. Friends, we have loss and grief because we don't live in Eden anymore. And in a way, this, this fact that we feel our losses so deeply is a testimony to the fact that we long for. It's like worked into our DNA for us to crave the garden. We long for that. Lewis, C.S. Lewis once remarked that it was our sense that the world isn't as it should be that is nearly proof that we are intended for another world. We have grief because we long for Eden. We're meant for a garden and the God who made it. But the question for you and I is then how do we deal with our grief? How do we deal with our losses? Where do we put it? What do we do with it? How do we grieve the different deaths we experience and the losses that are so real and painful? Part of the problem is I'm trying to answer these questions in a sermon, and it's rarely words that minister most deeply to us. And yet, God's word speaks, and we need to hear it because it's powerful and it offers hope. So, the the second thing I want to show you this morning is what do we do when we have grief? What do we do with our pain? Where do we take our loss? Well, There are essentially two ways to deal with our emotions. Um, There's the oftentimes religious way to stuff our emotions. Just take how you feel and shut it up. Ignore it. Push it away. It is the way of emotion that basically just takes what we feel and it hides it in the trunk of the car. Like, pay no attention to that guy that's yelling in my trunk, rolling around back there. and We just drive on thinking, like, I can just ignore that. Right? hide the emotions in the trunk. There's, then there's the, like the largely secular way of dealing with emotions, which is to just let them rule. It is the way of saying, just find out how you feel and to let it just express it. Just let her, let her, let her roll. It's the way of putting emotions in the front seat, in the driver's seat and saying, take it away, right? Lead wherever you want to go. So there's stuffing it. There's the, Put in our emotions in the trunk, and then just put in the emotions in the driver's seat. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is the Bible offers a third way. It doesn't do either one of these things. If you look at the Psalms, the, the, the book, uh, this collection of 150 Hebrew poems that are mostly songs, meant to be sung in worship, meant to be prayed from the heart, this book, this collection of Psalms, is really an emotional book. It's a book that is full of, of people's raw experience and emotion. Um, In fact, I would suggest to you that the the psalmists, the authors of the psalms, didn't put their emotions in the trunk and they didn't put their emotions in the driver's seat. This is what they did. They expressed their emotions and then they entrusted their emotions. They expressed how they felt to God and then they entrusted those feelings to God. And one half of the psalms, one half to one third, depending on how you categorize them, one half at least, are psalms of lament. And lament, in other words, is not happy language. Lament is deep anguish. And so... You know, oftentimes, I, I'll hear this comment occasionally, like, you know, I don't know why we sing that song. It talks about being broken, and shouldn't we just be praising God? And what I want to tell you is you have some good worship leaders here. Pastor Jerry and Ali, you know what they're trying to do? They're trying to help give dimension to our worship experience. To bring the raw emotion in, as well as instruct our souls with good theology. It's a both-end kind of thing. We have good worship leaders here. And so, The psalms are full, half full of lament. It's this expression of grief. My friend Gary Breshears, he's a theologian at Western Seminary, he he defines lament as this. He says a lament is a cry of distress offered to the Lord in a context of trust. It's a cry of distress to the Lord in a context of trust. The majority of us know how to lament a little. We call it venting. I'm just letting out some steam, Right? Um, And we just kind of vent. But the biblical picture of lament is a little bit different. Anne Lamott, um, a Christian author, defines kind of her experience growing up and learning how to pray. And one of the things that she says is, you know, I really have mostly only prayed prayed about three prayers during my whole life. One is, thank you, thank you, thank you. The other one is, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And the other one is, help me, help me, help me. right. And so we kind of learn how to pray with a list, right? Like we have this kind of assumption that the the, the issue here is God knows what's happening. He knows how I feel. I mean, he is omniscient after all. So my job is to tell him what to do, right? I have a to-do list for you, master of the universe. Would you take it and would you get on it? Come on, right? And so we, we kind of operate in prayer out of this assumption, but the biblical way of lament works pretty differently. Um, it expresses distress in the context of trust. So if you have a Bible, turn it open to um, Psalm 13. Psalm 13. Here's a great example of a lament prayer. David, the king, says this, How long, Yahweh? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long? How long? Must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Yahweh my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death and my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I will trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing Yahweh's praise for he has been good to me. Do you see it? Do you see the distress? Do you see the trust? It's both there. See, the world can't offer that. The world will tell you just distress. Like, we got nothing for you, so just distress. Get it out and move on. Numb it, medicate it, ignore it. But all you've got is distress, so better find a way to get comfortable. Religion will just say, just trust. Don't distress or something. You must be believing wrong. If you're distressing, you are, whoa, you're screwed up, right? That's what religion will do. And the world says distress. Religion says just trust. But the biblical faith, biblical faith says you can distress in a context of trust. I mean, look at it. He says, I feel like you've forgotten me. Now, this is David, the one God promises that his offspring will, uh, will have a throne that, and a kingdom that will last forever. I mean, he's been promised an eternal kingdom. He says, I think you've forgotten me. That's what it feels like. It feels like I can't see your face. That's a way of saying, I don't feel intimate. I don't feel close. I feel like I've lost the sense of your closeness. I'm being squashed by my enemies. They're killing me. My family's killing me. My job, that guy at work, is crushing me. My my to-do list is killing me. These bills are overwhelming me. But I trust in your unfailing love. I believe you love me. Notice that he says, I will praise you. I will sing your praises. It's not necessarily I'm praising right this moment. But I have enough confidence in you that I will praise. This is how lament works. And here's the point, friends, that lament isn't just to to vent. The point of lament is intimacy. It's, I want to gain intimacy, not just a solution. I want a solution, but I want to gain intimacy with God during bad times. The, The psalmists aren't always just looking for a solution. They're looking for a savior. They're saying, if I have you, that will be enough. I don't want to lose my sense of you they're looking for relationship that is how lament works it, it does three things it expresses what's happening it says this is what's going on this is my distress and it expresses how we're feeling this is how i feel about it this isn't okay and it ultimately expresses trust in the midst of distress there's a lot of nights there still are where like the only thing to say is in the context of our pain This sucks. It sucks that you don't have a mom before you're 30. That she doesn't get to know all three of our kids. You don't get to share that with someone who's so important to you. That's wrong. That is the world as it should not be. And so what do you do? You lament. You bring your distress and you say, it's is messed up and I, I don't know what to do with it i when going to try to hang on to you in the midst of it. And so when we have grief, when we have loss, the first thing we need to do is we need to learn the language of lament because it's the primary biblical way that we pay attention to our grief. Something's happening here and it's not right and I need you to pay attention to it because I want you to pay attention to me. But it's not enough to just give voice to lament, to learn the language of lament. We also have to know where to put our lament. We have to know where to place it, where to aim it. We have to know where we are taking our distress. We have to know the one that we are entrusting it to. Uh, there's this great psalm, Psalm 126. It's a, a psalm of ascent. It is a collection of prayers uh, that have to do with going up to the temple to worship the Lord. And and they're prayed regularly by the worshippers in ancient Israel. And is most likely a psalm that was written after the people of Israel had returned from Babylonian captivity, All right? So they're, they're rejoicing over what God has done, and yet, look at this. It says in Psalm 126, 4, he says, Restore our fortunes, Yahweh. All right? We, we had fortunes, and they're messed up. Would you restore them, All right? This is what's going on. These things are messed up right now. He says, Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping will carry seed to sow, or carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. In other words, this song, this this prayer set to music, is saying what? It's saying this, it's saying, look, just like I can count on you to bring rain to fill up the dry wadis of the Negev desert, each spring I know I can trust you to restore our fortunes. Just like sowing a seed into the soil with an expectation of a plant or fruit, there there will be something that comes from the seed. Just like that, just like that, I can sow my tears. I can plant my grief with the hope and the anticipation of joy. That's what the psalmist is saying. I read one scholar this week who said this. I love this line. He says, Sowing, planting seed, is always an act of anticipation of, and hope. So when we sow our tears, when we bring our lament to the Lord, we're sowing in an anticipation of hope and joy. Learning the language of lament is so important because it it helps us learn to plant our lament, to entrust our lament. What what is that? What is this picture of sowing and planting? Since we don't live in an agrarian society, it, it might help to think of it like this. When you have some money and you want it to make more money for you, you invest it, all right? You, you invest your money, you deposit it into an account that is supposedly going to yield interest for you. How's that working for you guys? I don't, I've been wondering for my, my whole life, like, how is it that you can get your money to make more money for you? The answer I have landed on is, you have to start with some money. So, anyway... When you have some of that and you plant it, you invest it, there's an expectation that it's going to return to you, but it's going to return to you more. It's going to come back to you at a gain. And the psalmist is saying that our tears, our loss, our grief isn't something we just forget or set aside or ignore or stuff down, but it is something we plant and sow and invest before God, that we are investing our tears during those confusing four and a half years and in the time after, there was no sense of, man, I'm really investing my pain right now. But there was a constant choice, I know for my wife and for our family, of I have an option. I can either become hurt by God or I can learn to bring my hurt to God. It's to say, God, this isn't good. This isn't the way it's supposed to mean be. But it doesn't have to mean that you're not good. And in a way, what we do is when we share our hurt and our anger and our pain with God, it is saying, I'm giving you me. Even though what's happening to me doesn't feel good and it doesn't make sense. And by the way, can I just offer this to you like as an aside? The evil necessarily cannot make sense. Have you ever thought about that for a second? Because if it made sense, it would have some rationality to it. Reason and rationality is something that is inherently good, as it reflects the mind of God and truth. And so when we try to make sense of something bad, we're, we're trying to cram it like a square peg into a round hole. God says it doesn't make sense. Evil can't make sense. If it did, it would somehow be good. But it doesn't make sense. And so sowing our tears is saying, I'm going to obey even when it hurts. I'm, I'm, I'm going to wait on you in this tension and I'm going to bring you my sorrow, and I'm going to wait on you to bring the joy. It's saying, I trust you to bring something from this, even though this isn't okay. So how do we do that realistically? How do you realistically bring your pain to God and trust him with it? You see, if we see that our tears are a result of our exile from the first garden, you also need to see that our hope and our healing and our joy are found in another garden. If you have a Bible, turn it to Matthew chapter 26. On the m- night that Jesus was arrested to be killed, he he first went with his disciples to Mount Olive. Uh, Mount Olive is it literally is this word that means oil press. It's this little olive grove, and in it there's this little place called the Garden of Gethsemane. It's this little garden outside the city walls of Jerusalem. And we read about this experience in Matthew 26, verse 36, where it says this that. Then Jesus went with them, his disciples, to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And prays this three times, the gospel writers tell us. Luke tells us that he became in agony here, to the point that he was sweating drops of blood. What does this grief of Jesus have to do with our grief? What does this loss and pain of Jesus have to do with ours? First of all, the thing that struck me this week while reading this is that Matthew says that Jesus began to be troubled and overwhelmed and sorrowful. Like, what's that about? I mean, Jesus has been telling his disciples since at least halfway through his ministry that he's going to be rejected and killed by the chief priests and the elders. This is going to be like, he knows it's coming, he knows death is coming. So why in the garden does he begin to be sorrowful? What's Jesus asking? He's asking that the cup would be taken from him, right? What's the cup? The cup is this metaphor in the Hebrew Bible for the wrath of God the right and just wrath of God on human evil that does violence against Shalom in Isaiah 51 we get this picture that God is saying uh, that the cup of his wrath the cup that makes Israel stagger he will be taken from them like this cup that they've been drinking in exile this sense of God's wrath on their idolatry and injustice and uh, violence he's, he's saying I'm taking that cup away from you the question is where does the cup go? Who takes the cup? What Jesus is saying here in the garden is he says, I'm experiencing the cup that made Israel stagger. He takes it on himself. In other words, Jesus is experiencing God's distance, God's just punishment on human evil. And now it's on him. And reading this passage over the years, I've always assumed Jesus is saying, like, take this cup, like, I don't want to go die. And I'm sure the th- sense of death would be overwhelming, but what does he say? He says, my soul is overwhelmed. He says, I'm so sorrowful, I could die. In other words, something beyond death is already at work killing him. Are you, are you following? Okay, so it struck me in recent years that the agony that Jesus is experiencing isn't just about death, but it's about the weight, about the horror about the hell of losing the father because what does god do with his wrath romans 1 says that the wrath of god is revealed in that he's given people over to their sin so what god does in his wrath is he says if you want independence from me your will be done you can get away from me you can have your way and so his wrath is revealed when he says go ahead and have your way i don't want to have my way And so Jesus, who lives for the Father, whose love and whose grace and whose power come from deep, intimate, unbroken, perfect fellowship with the Father, now faces the reality of getting the punishment of losing the Father, of losing fellowship, and he's devastated. He has tears in the garden in order to absorb the penalty and the price for what humanity has destroyed in the first garden. Jesus is in agony here because he's suffering the greatest grief. He's losing the greatest loss possible. He's losing everything and he's obeying perfectly and he gets grief. He gets hell. Why? Because Jesus wants to heal your tears by taking them on himself. See, until we learn to bring our laments to the one who has uttered the greatest lament, we will only have tears. But when we see that he's entered into our suffering, and not just entered into our suffering, but taken it on, taken it into himself, and taken on the root cause of our suffering, sin and death and the spiritual forces of evil, we will see that we don't just have tears, but we have a Savior, and that is what we need. Amen? And so God isn't hurling punishment. And wasn't hurling punishment at my wife when she lost her mom. Jesus had absorbed that into himself. We don't have a God who's far off. Sometimes it's easy to go, I think God loves everybody, but I don't know that he loves me. And so this grief and this loss mean that maybe I don't really matter to God, but when we see the tears of Jesus in the garden, they are tears not just for everyone, but for you. It is Jesus saying, you matter to me enough to endure this so you can be mine forever. He says to us in the garden, I know what grief and loss are like to a greater degree than any of us ever can. And so my wife and my family had to wrestle with this question, is God good? I think he's good, but is he good to me? Does he love me? Or what else will he take? And can I trust him to be good in the midst of this pain? And the reality for all of us, and, the, I was so, and I'll, I'll come back to how my wife tied that up and is still working at that, but you have to connect your own grief to his grief. Not to minimize it, not to look at his grief and go, well, I'm not going through much, but to look at him and go, I see that the extent that you are willing to go for me to bring an end to the cause of my grief means that you love me and you're for me. It changes the conversation from accusation against God to a conversation of trust of God. And so we have a place to sow our tears. We have someone we can trust. We can bring and invest our tears in the one who understands them and can absorb them and can offer us hope for life after grief. Because the reality is Jesus didn't stay dead, did he? There was another garden and a tomb in it that is forever empty. Because the disciples who cried their grief at the cross Ended up singing songs of joy in the garden of the empty tomb. The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus lives to intercede for us, that He is our great high priest who sympathizes with us. That is who Jesus is. So we have grief because we're meant for Eden, but when we have it, we can learn to lament and learn to trust the one we lament to. But then practically, here's the question. How do we grow? How do we grow through it? I need to rattle off a few things because we are running out of time. Practically, let me give you just four practical things. First is this. When you have pain and you have grief, don't see it as an interruption of your relationship with God. this is an opportunity for your soul to be stretched. Listen to this excerpt from Gary Sitzer. He's a professor at Whitworth College, and he wrote a book, uh, several books, and um, he's writing about his experience after... He had a tremendous grief in his life. He lost three generations in one car crash. And he was driving. And he lost his mom and his wife and his daughter. And this is what he says after one car crash. He says this. Catastrophic loss, by definition, precludes recovery. It will either transform us or destroy us. But it never leaves us the same. He says, sorrow took up permanent resonance in my soul and enlarged it. However painful, sorrow is good for the soul. The soul is elastic like a balloon. It can grow larger through suffering. In other words, friends, our grief is not a waste to God. It is isn't an interruption in God's plan for you on the other side of Eden. If you see grief as something that should never happen to you, if I'm a good person and God shouldn't allow, shouldn't allow this, you will have double grief. You will be grieved that you're grieving, right? But Jesus says, no, you will have trouble. You will have trouble in this world but take heart I've overcome this world right we have to begin with a basic assumption that Jesus wants to use all things good or bad all things for the good of those who love him who are called according to his good purpose this is Romans 8:28 you know what happens in Romans 8:29 the verse that we usually forget when we throw around 8:28 what's the good purpose paul tells you so you would be conformed to the image of his son he can use everything your life to conform you to the image of the son and the son by the way is the suffering servant who gives his life for the sake of the world he is one who knows pain second thing practically is this make sure you slow down when pain happens when grief happens when loss happens slow down to lament it we learn to ask the question what is my pain doing to me i, I At the risk of, I don't know, I don't want to say too much about my wife's story because it's her story, but I will say this. I am so impressed at the way that she would look at all the things she was experiencing and connect dots and go, I feel like this, I feel like this, I feel like this, and I know these things are coming from this. And what she would do, and as she slowed down to lament, she would over and over and over, she would go back to the scriptures to seek out who's God what is he going to do with my anxiety and my pain and my grief and how can I trust him? And she kept going back over and over and over to the word and allowing it to penetrate her heart. She slowed down. Ask, what is the pain doing and who is God and can I trust him? Take notice of the pain. Third, when you see grief and loss happening in others, do this. Stand alongside. Stand alongside. Don't fix and don't explain. Don't ever say the words I know exactly what you're going through. I think somebody said to my wife at one point, You know, my cat had cancer. I'm like, okay, where is this person? Can I punch him in the face? Like, I was ready. Like, <laughs> pastoral punch. I didn't do it. I'm still employed here. Um, so here's the thing we don't fix, we don't explain, we stand alongside. One of the most meaningful things somebody said to my wife, and it might sound silly. After she lost her mom, this person said, you know, I just wish I could stop the whole world so we could all grieve with you. And it, like, it was kind of the side comment, but for my wife, it it acknowledged the reality that her world stopped. My world stopped, and you see it, you're acknowledging it, and you're standing with me in it. That meant everything. Last thing, finally, what do we do? Well, we, we also practically just need to allow God to slowly but surely give us a ministry through our grief. Every grief is different. And you never know who God's going to put in your path that you might be the person who offers comfort out of the comfort you've received. Let me read 2 Corinthians 1. He says this. Paul says, A praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles so we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through him. Don't rush this, but give space for it. Over time, the Lord will use what he's done in you to be a comfort to those in pain. But before we go to the table today, before we run to the table, let us do this. Let's give some space for you to voice lament. Every one of us carries some pain. Maybe your lament today is for you. Maybe your lament is for someone else because the more you know God, the more you become burdened for others. Maybe your lament is over what you've done and what it's caused. Maybe your lament is over what has been done to you. But I want to give you a moment. On your notes, you have a blank page. It just says "My lament." and it is a space for you to make your own psalm of lament to write before we go to the table and express what is currently distressing you and how you feel about it and who you're trusting God to be in the midst of it. Give space to share your grief with the one who's trustworthy. And Jerry's going to lead us in a moment to the table to take our grief to the one who's been broken for us, to heal us by offering his body and his blood. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness that we can trust because we've seen you pour out your life in the second garden to repair what humanity had lost in the first. Call us forward into a deeper walk with you as we trust you with the good things and the bad things. We give you our laments and we give you our praise and we give you our trust. Amen.